0: Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker, from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots. To learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Across the world to Indonesia, to the small island of Bali, which has gathered so much commercial interest. It's become so crazy. A lot of Australians go there to party. It's unfortunately a place I've never visited before. And I thought that the great John Pendry was actually in France still. But he's telling me that for the last two and a half years, he has a villa with some rooms, a new kind of life there. He's married for the second time to a lovely lady who's also spontaneously joined us in the podcast, and that's his wife, Katia. He's the father of two daughters, a 22- and a 28-year-old who are in Belgium and France. And today, we have the, I have the great honor of looking at the mind of this wonderful and extremely talented pilot, John Pendry. No introduction really needed, but of course, I have to say something about the man. Born in 1957 confidently won the first hang gliding world championships in 1985 in Cusson. Then he won the paragliding world championships in 1997 in Castellon de Sos. In uh, 1993 in Verbier, he was third and he started to fly such hang gliders at 16 years old. He's an Englishman. He's lived in France for uh, 15, uh, 15 years. He had a kite school near Perpignan, right near Figueres, where I love the Museum of Salvador Dali. (laughs) And he finally stopped that kite school in, uh, in 2015. A civil engineer, having studied that kind of thing, he was even sponsored by a peanut company called Planters. He creamed and surprised the world in 1983 when he flew a 186 mile flight in the Owens Valley, which was absolutely astounding that such free flying equipment could fly something like that. He has even met. Queen Elizabeth II, he received a gold medal award by the Royal Aero Club. Sorry for the long introduction, but there's lots to be said about you, John. Hi, John. Hi, Katya. Welcome on the podcast. Hello. Thank Hello. you. Thank you for the introduction.
1: Yeah. You've been doing your homework,
0: I can see. <laughs> actually i have to say something on that i i believe that if you're going to do something you should do it properly and do what you do do well is one of the things i believe in my life i don't believe we in perfection but i do believe in kind of if you're going to get somebody to grace you with their presence at least give them the the credit that they deserve how are you guys doing in bali today tell us about your life there please
1: yeah we're very well it's um we're in a, we're in a bit of a Sort of lockdown situation like a bit like everybody although it's not uh, it's not too bad here because we we can still go out we're just advised to stay at home so it's a lot easier than in a lot of countries i think the the worst thing about it is that is they've closed the beaches and the beaches have been closed for nearly a month now and and flying sites as well so everything's shut down a bit from that point of view so that's uh, that's made it a bit frustrating especially since uh, there is kind of a windy season for kiting here which uh, which started about when they closed everything down which is uh, that's a bit uh, that is kind of frustrating but apart from that the weather's beautiful it's hot it's uh, we've got we're living in our villa with a swimming pool so it's not uh, it's not the worst thing in the world no
2: no it's not the the worst lockdown <laughs> i think so no we are really happy it's just yeah the frustration for not kiting or, or, or flying, flying. Mm. that's yeah it's a little bit
1: frustrating but but I think I think it should be over very shortly here actually because mm. uh, they, they, they uh, the tourism has just stopped dead which has been very dramatic actually because it you know it used to be I mean it was getting way too busy and now it's just gone from one extreme to the other and extremely quiet everywhere and um, so but uh, you know for the for the economy it's a disaster so I'm I'm sure it's not going to last too much longer. So I just can't afford to.
2: Bali looks like Bali 20 years ago. So it's really, really strange.
0: When was the first time you both came to Bali? And what made you come and live in Bali right now? How did you discover that place, please?
1: Well, I I came here, first of all, uh, 30 years ago, or a little more than 30 years ago. I was in Australia for a hang gliding competition. Pepe Lopez was was there and he was a, a very big surfer He was big surfer before a hang glider pilot while we were in australia he said to me oh, you've got to come to bali bali's fantastic so so i did came here on the way back from australia we came here for a couple of weeks i think it was a very different place to to how it is today it, it was fantastic it was a beautiful place and Pepe looked after me surfing which was great because i needed looking after <laughs> surfing that and I loved the place, and then came back uh, two or three times after that. Uh, going when I was going back to Australia again for, for other competitions in the, in the years following, but then didn't come back here for about 25 years uh, until 2016, maybe 16. 16. Yeah. We decided we wanted to leave leave Europe, basically thinking about where to go to, and Bali was the first place that came to mind. So we so we came back here we
2: came I came here yeah four years ago it was my first time and I just fell in love with Bali really it was wow you have an energy here it's very very different and uh, very uh, attractive and so I say okay that's the place I want to live now and uh, so yeah
1: yeah it's a very special place it's it's very different from how it was thirty years ago but uh, now uh, you can live however you want to live here, basically. You can live in a very basic, cheap way if you want to, or you can, or, you, or you've got everything, all the modern day amenities, really, that you can get anywhere else around the world. So it's a, it's a great choice. You can, you've got a huge choice of lifestyle here, which is, which is really, really nice.
2: But living, um, it's fun. the life here is you, you live summer all year
1: yeah the climate's it's fantastic it's,
2: yeah it's just fantastic it's not too hot it's never cold
1: it is quite hot but it's never yeah, cold. It <laughs> not
2: sure. too much yeah. yeah beautiful it's green it's Paradise. And there's
1: something about the people here as well, because it's the only uh, Hindu Hindu part of Indonesia, in fact, which makes a huge difference. You can really feel the difference of the mentality of the people. Very friendly people, very welcoming, even even though, they, even despite the fact that they, they've had quite an invasion of, of people from all around the world, but they're still, I mean, they've done very well from it as well. So, you know, was, but compared with uh, most places in the world, they're they're very welcoming. Welcoming, which is. May, makes it uh, easy, an easier place to come and live, so it's, uh, you know, a nicer place to come and live.
2: There, there are smart people, really smart people, because they they understood quickly. I think that all the, the Western people, they can bring us money, money, modernity, all that stuff and freedom. And so they say, OK, we're going to learn. And they, 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 are, they learn very fast, like English. Most of the people here, they speak English. It's quite amazing. If, even if they don't go at school, they, they learn But they want. They want to communicate easily with all the tourists and, uh, and so to make money. But not yeah. in a bad way, in a good way. They,
1: they've understood that very quickly for the uh, paragliding side of things as yeah. well. Because there's uh, a great place for tandem flying on the Phuket Peninsula, um, which is on the east side of the island. And there's a, they don't call it a trade wind, but it, it is a sort of trade wind that comes in here every year from, from like uh, middle of March through until November. It's pretty much uh, the same direction, same strength uh, every day. And, uh, and it just, and it blows straight onto a, 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 a cliff that, uh, the cliff actually is about, um, I think it's about 20 kilometers long altogether, in fact. So it's quite, quite long. Not particularly high, only about uh, maybe 150 meters high, something like that. But it's fine; and it's perfectly sufficient. So there's a pretty big um, tandem paragliding operation that's set up in, with various different launches along uh, along that part of the coast. Uh, but they they understood very quickly as well that they they need to keep it for the Indonesians and keep <laughs> keep everybody else out. Otherwise, they were going to be uh, they'd have no chance, wasn't it? Uh, but they've done that very successfully and they've they've got some big, big tandem operations going on there. Uh, right now, like everywhere all around the world, it's all shut down and we'll see what happens when everything opens up again, because um, they were heavily relying on, on the Chinese. The Chinese were coming here a lot and they were taking busloads of Chinese flying every single day. So we'll see. We'll see what happens when, when things sort of come back to normal. We'll see.
0: Uh, if I may, uh, how many tandem pilots would be operating there, and how many flights would they manage in a day? Obviously, asked us from a side of tandem pilots.
1: Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, huge. There's about about four or five different groups. They've all got ten to fifteen pilots each in each group. They they do mostly ten to fifteen minute flights. When they land, they take off and land back on top. And so each pilot is doing at least ten flights a day. It's quite big. I've heard it's. I've heard it's very big in South Africa as well. But I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's as big as that. I don't. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I thought it something really crazy in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, I think out of jealousy or a little bit of uh, remorse, we, we were told we're not allowed to top land anymore by our national parks. But I think that was whispered to them on the day that w- we really could top land. And I had a lot of people coming. And obviously, an Indian family would come along. <laughs> we have a lot of Indian clients come along. And yeah. and then the one says, oh, uh, uh, I would like to have my uh, son fly. And the son's yeah. like backpedaling. Oh, not me first, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, all eleven of the family fly because they see how cool it is. And on a day like that, I managed to fly thirty-one flights in a day. So that's my big record in Cape Town. But, uh, but I'm sure that Balinese pilots who know what they're doing. I've heard <laughs> that they've got a park trick in Bali to not even to not even drop their glider. That the guys okay. are just keeping yeah, yeah. controlling yeah. and they quickly change yeah, over the whole
1: capacity. team that helps holding on. And uh, and then the yeah the next passenger is already in the harness. So they just change change harnesses. Not again. It's a good.
2: They, they, it's a good have, they have. mostly eighty percent of Chinese people who came. Who come?
1: Oh, yeah. Not very actually. It's not very nice to see because a lot of the Chinese, they—they they just spend the whole flight uh, doing their selfies. I'm not sure they've even looked around, you know. And it's a beautiful place, which yeah. is quite a pity. <laughs>
0: So I have a big theory in the world about, and I've called it the selfie syndrome. It's where we have just been trained to become more and more narcissistic, more and more about ourselves and more and more about yeah. turning our back on our family, on our friends, on things that are actually meaning, uh, meaningful and important in our lives. It's quite a shame, you know, and I really maintain these two kinds of people. Let's talk about tandem, you know, people who will come along and they don't give a rat's ass what the scenery looks like, even if it's Beautiful. It's just about what their selfie picture looks like. And they'll actually be, you know, I've had Arab guys doing Snapchatting while they're on the while they're on the flight. The most important thing is that they and they're trying to send, like, oh, they don't have a cell phone reception. And that's like and I'm like, hey dude, enjoy the flight, you know. And you got the other kind of people and they are really in the minority that are couldn't give a rat's ass about the the photos and video and it's just about enjoying, you know, the moment and yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: when we um, bring some friends to, uh, to uh, paragliding uh, here, we have a camera, 360 camera. We make the, the, the film. And so people, they can see us, of course, but
1: see themselves,
2: see them, themselves sorry. Most of the film it's for all the, the landscape and uh, beautiful there, and uh, you have some temples and all that stuff, so it's just beautiful.
1: Yeah, so it's just to come yeah. back. I should probably uh, just fill you fill you in a little bit on what we do here. I, d- I actually wanted to set up a, a, a tandem flying operation here, but have uh, found that uh, that it's totally impossible because of uh, because of all the laws that keep keep all the foreigners out. As I said, although I, ha- I have heard that this is possibly changing, but it's just a rumor. I'm not sure of it. Friends and friends and family come from time to time here So, say. I, I mean, we go flying during the season now three or four times a month something like that just just for fun basically but it's it's you know it's fun it is fun mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun basically the the flying i do now is is, bas- is basically pretty much that pretty much time flying in fact which because which has, has been for quite a few years now because i when i stopped um competition flying i lost a little bit of the interest of um, just flying for myself you know i felt a little bit when i would go flying it felt a little bit like i'd done it already or you know i didn't have a didn't I lost a yeah, lost a bit of objective, lost a bit of uh, point to it. So so I started tandem flying, and uh, I really enjoy doing that. I really enjoy sharing it more now with other people.
0: I see Katya looking at you with a big smile on her face, nodding her <laughs> head profusely. Uh, yeah, she's,
1: you know, I, she's not at all into. I mean, I kite surf a lot as well, uh, but she's not at all into kitesurfing apart from taking photos of kitesurfing. But uh, tandem flying, tandem, she loves. She loves it.
2: Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, yeah. So. I remember I was smiling because I remember one of the first time he um, he took me on tandem, There it was in south of France, in the in the Pyrenees. We took a thermal, yeah, and um, it it was it was some eagles with us taking the thermal, and I, it was just amazing because we were flying at maybe I don't know two or three meters from the the eagles. So it was just amazing, an amazing experience. And after we went very, not very high. The, 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 the cloud base
1: was quite low. Yeah, we went up to cloud base. We,
2: we went into the clouds. So you can say, oh, yeah, it's good. My husband, he took me into the clouds. So it's quite an amazing experience. <laughs> maybe,
0: maybe what he did with you in the clouds is <laughs> uh, questionable.
2: I don't answer to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well Katja it's awesome that you spontaneously clipped in on our podcast you're an artist you have a beautiful creation on your arm there a tattoo that seems to be something like a vine or a, it looks great she's a photographer she describes herself as a street photographer um, she says a lot of people are pretty shy about themselves and about um, uh, showing who they are so she's found herself a niche she has a great um, uh, facebook page which we will also link to this podcast but you guys have started a very very cool little project some uh, three months ago called Bali chronicles an instagram page in which you are as you said highlighting talents in bali uh, people uh, were obviously having a difficult time meeting each other in in the corona times so it's everything from fashion to food to all sorts of talent would you describe that to me
1: See, it's something just, uh, I came across, actually, um, just before Christmas. Started looking into it. I'm basically looking for a way to, to earn my living a little bit here as well, which is not so easy being here in Indonesia, because there's quite a lot of, for, like like for flying, for all, uh, all other sorts of activities, there are quite a lot of laws to make it a bit difficult for, for foreigners to, to work. But, um, yeah, so I came across Bali Chronicles, which was uh, at the time was uh, a more... Uh, Travel and touristy type uh, type um, feed, uh, and we decided to change it to to, to be. Focusing on on all the talent that there, are, there is in Bali, because there's a huge amount of talent, of people from all around the world, plus the plus the Balinese people here as well. From from the artistic sides, from the arts to to sports, to to surf, to kite, to paragliding, to music, to literature, to uh, and then just the, the beautiful scenery that there is here as well. So we're we're concentrating on um, on the people that. That find the parts of this in Bali, or or produce parts of this in Bali, and despite the fact that it's well, it's been a little bit more. It's been more difficult than the last month to meet people, but before then, and it's already starting again now. They actually have been meeting up with a uh, with a lot of these people, and it's extremely interesting because um, really, yeah, they really, yeah, there really are huge amounts of talent and uh, and very interesting people in all different. Yeah, even coming down like going to the health side of things with all the different things from, from classic medicines through to, through to Ballyans, which are the traditional Bernese he ancient healers here, which are who are incredible as well. And I'll come to a story on that. Actually, I've got a good story on that. Um, I'll tell you that now. I, when I came, when I came here during the time that I was here, I got sick. I got a very big fever, but uh, I, I was, I was very hot, but, uh, And I had a big fever, but I was not sweating at all, completely dry, which was pretty weird. And he said, come with me, (laughs) and took me to a little village, which must have been very close to where we are now, in fact. But uh, at that time, was a bit in the middle of nowhere. stone table in the middle of the village. The chief of the village came out, and he said, lie down on the table. So I lay down on the table. And uh, he brought out, got out some little matchsticks and he did a sort of acupressure, not acupuncture, but acupressure, starting with my toes and every he sort of push a, push a matchstick into my toe. While he did that, when he did that, I'd feel a sort of electricity go right through my body. And it's like I had an electric shock that on both feet and then came around to my uh, head and did the same thing in my forehead. The whole thing lasted about 15 minutes. And then he said, okay, you can go. I tried to give him some money, didn't want any money. So I went home, went back to where we were staying and slept for 24 hours when I woke up. And uh, so so I always remember that. And I know since then uh, there's been a lot of stories of the Balian healers that there are here in Bali. Although they've been quite exploited now. uh, I don't know if you'd say exploited actually, but uh, a lot of them have become very commercial uh because they realize their powers so it's actually quite difficult now to find the genuine ones uh that are still uh, still genuine and still do good work uh, or at least without charging a fortune because some of them charge a fortune but there are there are some if you if you look around and so that's another of sort of things that we're that we're uh, we're working on focusing on with body chronicles as well so uh, I-
0: as I mentioned earlier, you know we really need to reinvent ourselves and be entrepreneur-like. Is one of the strongest messages we have from this uh, from this idea of Corona. And um, and much as I see you speak with a little bit of remorse, John, as you as you say that you would have liked to start a tandem business there in Bali. Which uh, um, obviously, when a door closes on you, a door closes on you, and there's uh, very little you can then uh, do. That's uh, that's uh, much like me looking at the. A tandem business in Cape Town um, after this lockdown um, in, in, a, in a negative light because uh, everyone will be scrambling for money. And once a price war starts in indus- any industry, that's the beginning of the end. So life changes. Um, you've gone through having a kite school uh, for 15 years. You were hang gliding professionally. I see a sweet little kitty cat show up there.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you paraglided for so long. And now your life is a much more relaxed one. You have a wonderful wife. I'm sure you have lots of contact with your daughters. Uh, let's turn back time a little bit towards paragliding, because the idea with this is to obviously have a little look at the past. Tell us about your early days. What motivated you at 16 years old to start something as crazy as hanging underneath some cloth?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, obviously it was it was hang gliding then, not, uh, not paragliding at the start, because that was all paragliding. But um, yeah, it was just something I came across when I was um, – yeah, I was 16. Came across uh, an advert for a kit for a hang glider in a in a magazine. It just looked uh, just just appealed. Just the idea just appealed to me. I was I was already uh, started um, seven years old with with my dad. So I was already into outdoor sports uh, to do with uh, the wind and weather and all that, that sort of thing. Uh, when I, yeah, when I saw this advert for a kit, I I sent off for the for the plans. I think I've still got them somewhere. Actually, in fact, I do. I know I have. They're in France, still actually at the moment. The guy that was making it was called Jeff McBroom, and it was the McBroom Arian, which was my first hang glider. Which uh, so you actually bought the plans and the, and the and the sail, and then you had to air to make the frame, which was uh, for me at sixteen years old. Was- quite tricky because it had to find all the aluminium and, and I, we did get the rigging we did, get, did get the rigging whilst as well but anyway I managed to do it and got it all together and uh, then had some very scary times trying to teach myself to fly because it was before there were any schools as well and there weren't that many there was a few people that I was where I was, I was living in Sussex which was um, quite close to Brighton and around Brighton there was quite a big uh, that was one of the big uh, flying biggest flying scenes started up in quite early on in in the in the hang gliding world, because that was uh, so that was in 1974, in fact, when I started, uh, and that was so it was quite at like the early days, even of hang gliding. It was quite the early days. So Yeah, I started trying to learn, teach myself to fly on the on the on the small rolling hills, which are actually ideal for that in uh, in southern England. It took me a long time to learn. Well, first of all, the glider was pretty terrible, had really awful performance. And uh, it was also quite tricky to understand how to get to how to get the angle of attack right to to, to to be able to launch and not dive into the ground or stall straight off, which was what happened most of the time. So, <laughs> which fortunately, yeah. Fortunately, was...
0: That glider is similar to Rogallo. And would you mind just giving us a little bit of a timeline of the earlier days, a bit before that? Obviously, when you were sixteen, you must have been looking at like what existed a few years before.
1: Yeah, well, that was a that was a regalo wing. The, when I when I first had it, it didn't it didn't even have a kingpost. So it was really the, the classic regalo wing. And but it was, uh, I mean, hang gliding in Britain, anywhere, I think in most parts around the world only really started like a couple of years before that. So there wasn't a lot. The, most of the other gliders around were very similar. That's all. That's all there was, pretty much uh, at that time. That, that they were all very similar style, very similar shape. And it was after it was in the years following that, the end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, when when things when there was a real explosion, when a lot of people started flying and a lot of people started making gliders, and uh, and then there was a huge development. They they improved hugely in in the few years after that. But that was in yeah. It took me. I think it took me like at least two years before I managed to get a soaring flight in. So there was a little frustrating at the time.
0: <laughs> Doing a sport for two years before you actually taste what it's about must be extreme.
1: I can remember that first soaring flight, which was at Devil's Dyke, just uh, close to Brighton. And it, it was just an incredibly magic moment or well, moment. I managed to stay up for half an hour, which was totally incredible. For me at that time and it uh yeah i mean it's one of uh so it's one of my super strong memories of, uh, of flying you know so that, that first soaring flight was just totally magical compared with the, all the flights i'd had in the two years before that which were very short just uh, skimming skimming around and going down to the bottom and then walking back up again
0: So now we go uh, a little bit further. So you were still on your first hang glider for those first two years, uh, I assume. And then how long did it take before you got another one and another one uh, before you got uh, sponsored by uh, Planters Peanuts? 1983, of course, was a big, big flight. Uh, What happened in those first years?
1: Took, it was a couple of years before I got a, well, probably three years even before I got, before I changed my glider. And uh, by that time, I was at uh, I was at university in in Wales, uh, Cardiff in Wales. That was when I really started flying a lot. I, I used my university time to go flying more than anything else, in fact. <laughs> and, uh, and then that was when I got my first really nice glider, which was a Willswing SST, which was incredible glider. For, incredible change for me at the time and was a really great glider and then and then I went through a whole string of different gliders and I spent a lot of time flying in the in the Welsh hills which was uh, a good experience a bit gray and wet like it is in Wales but um, but I spent a lot of time flying and it was when I finished my university degree uh, I moved back to Brighton close to Brighton then Carried on flying. That's when I really started, really realized that uh, flying was what I really wanted to do, what I really wanted to get into. I, when I, just after I finished university, actually, the first job I got was uh, repairing hang gliders for uh, Mike de Glenville in Lachens in the south of France uh, for, for a summer. Uh, working for him which obviously gave me plenty of time to fly as well which was really good and it was just then that i started getting into competitions as well which was i know i didn't i was i was flying alongside the french nationals in the in the south of france uh, but it uh, i started doing that not because i was particularly interested in competing but because i was interested in cross-country flying and uh, the organize and it was such a nightmare trying to get back from wherever you landed with a hang glider that uh, having the organization of a of the competition just made everything so much easier so i thought oh this is good i'll start doing this and then i realized quite quickly that i was quite good at competitions so so i got to, which was obviously very motivating as well so started doing more and more and i was fortunate enough well my dad my dad helped me a lot getting my first sponsorship sponsorship in fact with with planters peanuts because he was he was working he was they were parked of a group that he was working for in America, so that's where it all where it came from, which was a huge help. It allowed me to uh, go travelling around the world, going to different competitions, and uh, and it it all sort of coincided very well because I, I just started this this sponsorship. I uh, only I only had it for less than a year, I think, when I when I set the world record in in eighty three. Yeah, in Owens Valley. Yeah, that was a that was a was a great bonus for my sponsorship, actually, because as soon as you get something like that, sponsors love it. <laughs> Led on from there very well, and then I, and then I started, to, you know, getting good competition results as well. So, the sponsorship carried on with Planters Peanuts for, I think it was about six years or so, something like that, six or seven years, uh, So wow. which, which was a huge help.
0: But obviously, at the time, that wasn't enough for you to live from. You couldn't live from just a sponsorship from one uh, peanut uh, company.
1: I could actually, yeah, it was a good sponsorship. It was a very good sponsorship. It was, it was, um, it, it, yeah, it paid for me to to live from and uh, to to have most of my expenses for travelling as well. Although, uh, since I started getting good results, I, I picked up sponsorship from the different hang gliding brands and that sort of stuff as well. So that all helped. Lovely. After a few years of doing that, I was joined joined Airwave um, Airwave Gliders, just hang gliders at that time on on the Isle of Wight. That was. Good for me, not just not just from a business side of things, but also it uh, it gave me another motivation for my competition flying actually, because uh, as uh, yeah as I'm sure you know you know com- competition flying is is a very psychological thing, and it's uh, even if you're the best pilot in the world that's not enough. You've got to have your psychology's got to be um, got to be just right as well. And uh, I had found at that time, just before I, before I joined Airwave Gliders, uh, my motivation was dropping off a little bit. was finding it a little bit more difficult to, be, uh, to have the, the right psychological mindset to, to do well in competition. And, th- and this having joined Airwave, that helped me completely and gave me a new boost, boost of life, if you like.
0: Oh, wonderful. So if I understand it correctly, you haven't really worked as a civil engineer in your life.
1: <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> not at all. In fact, <laughs> that's perfect.
1: Yeah, when I finished my degree, it was a uh, not a very good time to be a civil engineer. It was uh, there were a lot, were way too many civil engineers at that time. So I did actually try and sort of half heartedly get a get a job. I went to a few job interviews and things at that time, but none of them worked out. But I think, I'm sure it was uh, looking back on it. I'm sure it's because I was uh, it didn't come over over a very as being very keen on <laughs> getting a job. I was much keener on going off flying <laughs> So Well, that's
0: a whole lot better than me, John. I've never been to a job interview in my life. So uh, <laughs> it looks like we have a, a big similarity in that we've, we've chosen <laughs> the love of all sorts of alternative things, but not yeah. uh, working formally. You have a Wikipedia page uh, is one of the places that I've got some really great information on you. You're of course extremely respected in the world of uh, hang gliding and paragliding. In the past, and um, you have told me that your worst glider was also one that you flew at Devil's Dyke, which was a prototype. Um, tell us about that thing.
1: Yes, that was when would that have been? That would have been about uh, early '80s, I suppose. There was uh, there was a small hang gliding company called. Vulture light that used to exist in Brighton for a few years. So there was a, it was a really great flying scene actually at Devil's Dyke at that time with a lot of people flying and very active, uh, a lot of interesting people as well. Uh, but I was there, I was up on the hill there just flying around one day and they came up to me and said, oh, can you fly this? We'd like you to fly it, it's a prototype. Just like to get your opinion on it. So I said, yeah, okay, no problem. So I took off. The instant I took off, I realized it was not a good idea. <laughs> The glider was extremely hard to turn and then if I did the slightest turn it was, it was in danger of going into a spin. I just managed to hang on to the thing basically and fly it down to the bottom and I was extremely happy when I managed to land in one piece without crashing and, um, and, uh, prayed to, prayed up. <laughs> to the put my hands on the ground and said, thank you, God, for letting me live another day. That was definitely the worst glider I ever flew, and I think uh, nothing ever came from that prototype. It didn't go anywhere at all. So,
0: I'm sure you prayed to every kind of God that existed, and you gave that glider promptly back and said, this is rubbish. In your most uh, eloquent English, as gentleman courteous as you are, you may be uttered a swear word. <laughs> yes. Now I asked you earlier about one of the worst paragliders you've ever flown, and then you mentioned also an Airwave comp- uh, competition glider at the World Champs in Fiersch that Bruce Goldsmith had flown. Tell us about your experience.
1: We were there in Fiersch in Switzerland for the Hand Gliding World Championships, actually. It was just at the time when we were setting up paragliding with Airwave. So, So, as part of the British team, me, Bruce Goldsmith, and Robbie Whittle, we were all there, all in the team. But we also had all all this paragliding gear there that we were looking at because it was you know, business time as well. We were actually flying on the, the last practice day before the start of the World Championships. Pretty terrible day, it's been raining yesterday, I think, we've been trying to fly a bit. And we gave it up at the end of the day, went up to a little takeoff that was on a cold coming out of a, at the end of a valley. Uh, was, so it was an easy place where we could drive to where we could uh, launch right next to the van and just uh, we just wanted to do a little bit of soaring. So I think I think Bruce flew this glider first. It was actually, I don't know if I should say this, I'm sure they won't like me saying it, but it was from Apco. It was an Apco prototype because <laughs> we, we, we weren't quite sure how we were going to do it if we were going to use other people to manufacture for us or uh, designs or whatever. We were looking at everything, all the different possibilities at the time. So yeah, I think Bruce flew first. I think maybe Robbie sure, flew it as well. Uh, but then we were just doing tiny little flights, uh, just just get, getting the feel of the glider. Uh, and so I, in my turn, I either took it off, flew probably only like a uh, hundred meters, 150 meters, along from the van, just close to the top, you know, hardly going up either. Turned, turned left to come back, and the thing spun on me, and spun me straight into the into the ground, into the, into the hill. So I slammed in back first. So I was a bit stunned, but got up and walked, gathered it all together, and walked back to the van. So I sat down, etc. I wasn't—I hadn't been wearing a helmet or no protect, no protective gear whatsoever at all because it was just a little flight. Which obviously was a mistake anyway, as you do from time to time. And then things started going very strange. Yeah, I started losing consciousness basically. So they put me in the van, took me back to Fife, and I, I lost my memory, in fact, for a whole day so the world championship world hanging hang gliding championships was supposed to start the next day i was i was the reigning world champion at the time so i was defending my title. <laughs> <channel. laughs> uh, unfortunately luckily for me it carried on raining so it didn't start the next day so i had another day to recover and then two days later i was still pretty groggy i was um just about good enough to go and fly so i started playing the competition from there it turned out i could i also uh yeah I was concussed. I lost my memory. I also compressed two vertebrae in my back, which I still have pain from today. <laughs> but that was definitely counts as my worst hang glider flight ever.
0: <laughs> and might be that you still have some pain in your back because two days after compressing a vertebrae, man shouldn't pick up a hang glider and try and defend his title as reigning world champion. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. <But laughs>
1: When uh, you are sound like you are, you do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yes.
0: What a pleasure! What a delight to chat with you across the world in Bali. Really, really lovely to uh, to to get some insight into you. Robbie Whittle is also in uh, on my radar. He's been in communication with me, and uh, he lives in New Zealand right now. He loves speed. He's uh, riding uh, in the Isle of Man TT in the seniors class, as you probably know. And yeah. uh, what a legend!
1: yeah he's a legend yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know how he's got to be the age he is because he uh he certainly never thought he would <laughs> he's as mad mad as he ever was i think great person to be around could always. you think
0: of one of the maddest or maddest things that you've ever seen robbie whittle or bruce uh, goldsmith do something like uh,
1: that robbie's a lot madder than bruce i must say uh, but yeah i can tell you uh, one of the maddest things i ever saw robbie do we were um, all on the isle of Wight, where we were working for airwave developing hang gliders uh, before paragliders but then at that time hang gliders uh, we went out one day onto the most of the the places to fly on the isle of wight uh, were not that great very small little hills it's uh, very difficult to get any decent flying really anyway we went out one day to to test test a couple of gliders i think it was just me and robbie actually and we we went out so uh, he took off first Flew on this little hill, uh, which is only about 60 metres high, I think, (laughs) something like that. Coming up, it was just about soarable, probably. Uh, He took off. First thing he did was, having gone out and gained maybe 20 20 metres, pulled the bar in, dive out of sight to, to, to try and do a loop. But the upside of the loop... He was too slow on, so, so he stopped at the top, parked, uh, parked his glider, and so here he was all of 40 metres above the ground, I suppose. And so the last thing I saw was him disappearing below the hill from my side, uh, and just as he disappeared, out came his parachute. And it opened with about, uh, well, a second to spare, and just put him in a little bush just at the bottom there. <laughs> Uh, that's the sort of thing that Robbie does quite frequently
0: <laughs> absolutely 160 miles an hour around the Isle of Man thinking that there's no tomorrow and I mean how many close calls do you think Robbie probably had in his life
1: well I've seen plenty so God knows <laughs>
0: a lot yeah
1: but uh, he's very, very extremely talented so he's Actually, that's, that's one of the things that, um, that that people often ask me. Actually, is how can you take so many risks? And uh, I say to them, well, for me, it's. I mean, for everybody, that's everybody that's a hang glider pilot or a or a paraglider pilot, they understand this really. But for me, it's not uh, not a big risk. You know, I can I can judge risks maybe better than other people that don't fly, or other people that don't feel capable of flying. Uh, and Robbie is exceptional on that side of things in that uh, he he's, he's that he's that level above again uh, on being able to, to judge his risk so he takes what seems to be for us huge risks for him a, a lot less risks so that's why that's why he gets away them so so much of the time because he's because he's able to he's capable it's extremely
0: and it always brings us to the question of risk and reward and, and uh, you know, how, how far can we go? Uh, people people say to me, Steph, you must have lived your nine lives 20 times already because, uh, you know, they see me do the craziest things and I get away with it and I get away with it. And I also ride a motorcycle like a deranged human being. <laughs> Isn't it a calculated risk at the end of the day? Isn't Robbie's uh, edge, yeah, if we can think, call it? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's completely. Yeah, it's totally calculated, but he's able to calculate it very well and then react in the in the in the right way. So that, that's what uh, reduces the risk. In fact,
0: so, you have some top tips. Uh, if somebody were to look to the great John Pindry and say, all right, there's one thing I can learn from the man. What would that be? What would you say are the ultimate do or not do things?"
1: I would say the ultimate tip for. Uh, flying uh kiting uh, as well actually all these sorts of sports is observation you've got to have good observation of what's going on around you in terms of other people particularly more importantly weather the wind clouds waves if it's observation of what's going on around you is the most important thing so that, so long as you observe uh, you can see what's going on then you can then you can make your judgment as to what you do accordingly the biggest tip for uh, staying safe flying is uh, if you're in doubt, just don't take off it's so easy, so easy and it's so hard at the same time, You know, especially, especially in competition flying because uh, you you've got so many different pressures to perform. If, you, if you've got any doubts, just don't, don't take off and you'll be
0: fine. I'm, I'm just writing these very words down because they are so very pertinent. You know, and um, you're not the first uh, of, let's say, great legends uh, of Paragliding who have uh, who have said a very similar thing. Yes. So, you know, if something is said again and again. It obviously is holding true. Uh, Katia r- arrives back on the scene from a little errand that she had to run on the outside, mm-hmm. uh, looking all sheepish and shy, but absolutely <laughs> great to see both of you here, looking very relaxed and great. Um, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the line, John. Um, absolute, absolute delight. Um, are there any other last things you would like to bring up or say or any message for the world? <laughs> message for the world. Uh,
1: yeah, ignore coronavirus. It's a load of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've said it then. <laughs> just just be careful, Carmen. Just be
0: careful. Yeah, yes, I didn't
2: that's say That's
1: not it. what I said. <laughs>
2: just be careful a little bit. But don't be paranoid. That's that's
0: for sure. Most of the okay. people are too much. And, uh, so no, you, I,
2: no, I think no, we
0: uh, could I think that the media in the world has just made everybody paranoid. Has made has made. <laughs> I mean, Americans are, are scared of bloody their own shadows.
1: I know it's totally mad, to, total madness. Anyway, the world's how it is. You can't change it. That's what. I, yeah, that's <laughs> totally what I think. That it's just. Complete rubbish. But anyway, yeah,
2: but it's a good it. reason to uh, to rethink about yes, that's our the good, that's society, society and how they are.
1: That's the good thing that's coming from
2: functioning. It. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's not the good way. Maybe.
1: I must. I mean, here in here in Bali, it is remarkable. Uh, as I said earlier, the, ch- the change has been from being way overcrowded to being very uncrowded now. Which, but it actually makes it super nice. <laughs> it's so much more pleasant. So. You know, if we could come back, come back find a sort of happy medium between the two, it could be a a lot better.
2: Maybe more about, um, how do you say, solidarity? People from Bali, they are acting different Western countries. Solidar, Stick together and they're helping each other all the time. Like like they say, they are not going to starve, really, because if you can't... If you don't have anything to eat, your neighbor will give you something.
0: And I think it goes back to that concept of us kind of told to look in on ourselves. To, it's all about us. It's how important we are. All this kind of crap. Yes. Meanwhile, if you have a... I mean, I live in Africa, all right? And uh, to to take the people who are in the townships, which we uh, call townships, they are slums, and, and take them and, and confine them into their shacks, not very pleasant places to stay, and places where they actually just have a bed and a, and, and a roof over their heads for the night. Now they have to stay in lockdown for two months in that very place. They might share that shack with four or six people, awful living conditions, for living, but they are never there. They're outside in the street. They're socializing. There's always something going on. And if you asked somebody, let's say the poor of the poor around the world, where would you like to be what would you like to do would you like to go on a a hot air balloon or a jet or a yacht and the answer would probably be i don't really care what i do as long as my friends are there
2: yeah not to be alone we are not an animal who can live alone so and i think maybe we understand a little bit more of that concept just a little bit less selfish and less
1: commercial and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, just, I just find it worrying myself that uh, the vast majority of people seem to get sucked in by, by the media and politicians. I think it's getting worse rather than better, which is kind of worrying. And I'm not sure that this is going to help. I hope it does, but I'm not sure. I don't see it for the moment.
0: I don't think that we can uh, ignore the fact that this is going to change a lot of things in our lives. Um, yeah. That, as you said, maybe the middle ground of Bali now being extremely quiet when it was extremely busy, getting extremely busy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Cape Town in itself has uh, has become extremely busy with regards to traffic and all that kind of thing. Now, a whole lot of people are working at home, and they can actually see, wow, I've been wasting three hours a day just mundanely sitting in the car listening to podcasts. And now (laughs) I can work from home and be so much more productive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I think we can wrap it here. I say thank you very, very much for participating. It's been absolutely a gem and it's been great. And I I loved your insights. Happy kiting, happy flying, happy life in Bali. Meet you guys soon. You're absolutely welcome in South Africa.
1: Thank you. And you you are here as well. (laughs) Uh, uh, Thank you as well. I've enjoyed it as much. Enjoyed it very much as well. So great. Thank you. Thank
2: you. (laughs) i <laughs>